Please stand, if you're able, for a reading from God's Holy Word. Today's scriptures reading is from Esther 6, 1 through 14. Please read with me the verses in bold. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds and the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was how Mordecai had told about Bigthiah and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who had guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to seek to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young man told him, Haman is here, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be bought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one of the king's most noble officials, let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is all the Jewish people, you will, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther has prepared. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Good morning. My name is Daniel, one of the pastors here. Thanks for joining us here this morning. Um, it's not always easy to agree on what's funny. 
Because what's funny to you may not be funny to me. And what's funny to me may not be, and it should be though, funny to you. <laughs> we all have different definitions of, of humor. I think early on in high school, I loved staying up late at night on Saturday evenings. And Brad mentioned this, Saturday Night Live. New episodes of Saturday Night Live late, late into the evening. One of my favorites, if you're a fan of Saturday Night Live, was the church lady. I can hear some of you laughing because you guys remember that. Played by Dana Carvey, one of my favorite comedians. He plays the character of and I don't, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, Enigd Strict, a church-going Christian woman who thinks she's better than everyone else because she goes to church. Now, Carvey portrays the smug attitude of the church lady perfectly with the phrase, now, isn't that special? You guys have to watch it. For all you youngsters out there, you guys can just Google it and go on YouTube and find it. But what I think is funny. Now, satire is so prevalent in our culture and, and uh, that most of us are familiar with it already, even if we don't realize it. Sometimes it's subtle. We see it on TV. We see it in cartoons. Some of the best cartoons are funny because it pokes fun at the powers that be. And the church lady is a satire on how the world views the church. It's sad, but if you've been in the church long enough, you can poke fun and laugh. And the book of Esther is no different. If you're just joining us, we are in a sermon series in the book of Esther, a book tucked away in the Old Testament about a Jewish remnant living in a strange place in the land of Persia, under the rule of a king by the name of Ahasuerus. Now, we want and we expect our books to be, to be serious, right? We want the Bible to be serious and grim in nature. And the book of Esther can be that. It details uh, horrifying abuses and immorality. Certainly, there are dark and troublesome and uncomfortable parts of the book. But as you read through it, the story reads, as mentioned, like a satire. The book of Esther is quite funny. The use of satire, right? irony and exaggeration and, and humor to mock the empire's claim to power and authority. The book of Esther is intended to make us laugh, cutting the empire, the king down to size. You see, because he's not as powerful as he thinks he is. Just like every Saturday Night Live, uh, every season of Saturday Night Live mocks every president who has ever served in office, Republican or Democrat, the show cuts them down to size. The book of Esther is pure comedy. The comic aspects of the book are not in the book by accident, merely to provide comic relief. It's the essence of the book. 
They define the genre of the book and dictate how we should read it. For you see, we cannot fully come to appreciate the book unless we realize it's meant to be funny. And perhaps chapter 6 is the funniest of them all. Last week, we read through chapter 5, the book of Esther, that records Esther's risky decision to appear before the king uninvited. And it ends with Esther being richly rewarded as the king generously offers her whatever you want, up to half the kingdom. And at the end of the chapter, we see the evil plots of Haman, the author of the edict to rid Persia of all the Jews. You see, it's the fickle heart of Haman. Brad mentioned the fickle heart of Haman last week, as Haman is joyful and glad one moment, and then infuriated and, and filled with wrath the next. He sees Mordecai, and that infuriates him. I mean, he's so glad he's been invited by Queen Esther to dine with the king. And then he comes out of that glad and joyful of heart and sees Mordecai, his, his mortal enemy. And all of a sudden, the, the anger rages inside his heart. So Haman, the second in command, the second most powerful per person in all of the land, erects the gallows onto which Mordecai would be hung. And that's how the chapter ends. And then chapter 6 begins this way. Late one evening in the palace, the king is tossing and turning in his bed, unable to sleep. It's unclear from the text the reason for his restlessness, but it's late. All of the boutiques and shops, all the restaurants and coffee houses, all of the local establishments and the watering holes are all shuttered for the evening. There's really no place to go this late in the night, so he might as well be productive. Maybe a little rearranging of the king's chambers. Maybe responding to a few emails. Perhaps preparing a new edict that would go out first thing in the morning. I don't know what a king does. I don't know what a king does. I thought the king had people to carry out those things, which he himself does not want to do. And my friends, yes, he does. He has people for whom he can do or they can do things that he does not want to do. And in an old-fashioned, uh, with an old-fashioned Alexa, an audible book of sorts, this part is also funny. I think this whole book is funny, and I think this whole chapter is funny. He has someone reading to him late in the night. I mean, it sounds like uh, a parent caring for a child, right? If you want the kid to sleep, you read him a bedtime story. And so he has this talking head, and he, he summons him to the king's chambers, and, and I'm sure the, the reader is wiping the sleep from his eyes. And he comes to the request of the king, as the king has requested, a reading from the book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles. He, it was a record of uh, legal decisions of the king's court, of royal edicts, of battles won, 
of tributes paid. Now, I, I can understand why you want a bedtime story like this, right? I mean, to help you fall asleep at the, at, at, uh, in the evening. And again, as, uh, as, I can, I, as I speculate why such a request, I'm sure the king says, scribe, read me the dictionary, right? I mean, I, or Alexa, how, tell me how the, the history of bread. Like I said, it's funny to me. Or please read me the tax code. And I can understand why you're not laughing because I think this, uh, this congregation, you're probably saying, I like that stuff. <laughs> read me the book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles. And it seems to do the trick. I'm sure you can imagine King Ahasuerus so with drooping eyelids and head bobbing, dozing off, like I'm sure some of you are right now. About to fall asleep as the civil servant is droning on and on and on in the background. That is until the, the talking head gets to the good part of the story. There's a sudden jolt of electricity that pushes him into alertness. He's now wide awake and he says, read that part again. What did it say? What did you just read? You see, it's the part about two traitors, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, who attempted to assassinate the king, and it was Mordecai who stepped in to save the day. And Ahasuerus asks, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? It's a repeated question. Again, you may see this over and over again in chapter 6. It's a question repeated in this short chapter, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the answer, nothing. Nothing's been done. Haman, who had been sleeping in, I'm sorry, sleepless in Susa, building the 75-foot gallows, happens to walk by the king's chambers at just the right time. And that seems to be another theme throughout the book of Esther, at just the right time, or for such a time as this. By the way, I now own a mug that actually has that. <laughs> Some would like to believe that things happen by mere chance. That things happen by pure luck. That perhaps you just found $20 on the floor by your good fortune. Or you call into your favorite radio show and just happen to be the 20th caller. Or I know a person who had a brain aneurysm, this is a true story, while she was still in the hospital. Or about a person I know uh, who was in Korea at the time, just exiting a shopping mall right before the whole building collapsed. Right, and so we say, yes, happenstance or, or pure luck or just guesswork. There is a saying that is often used to explain the success that some people experience. They say, I was in the right place at the right time. 
This has also been said of many who have survived fires or natural disasters as they took cover in the right spot in the nick of time to save their lives. Many people think that being in the right place at the right time is a matter of luck or even guesswork. Now notice carefully the timing. Isn't it beautiful? Ahasuerus could not sleep. Why? Because I think in God's great design, he keeps us awake. He stays up all night in order that he might be reminded of Mordecai's heroism in saving his life. When he sent to the palace for an advisor to make the situation right, who should be walking in the door but Haman, who's at the palace unusually early, presumably because he could not wait any longer to tell the king of his plans to execute Mordecai. God has set up Ahasuerus and, and Haman, do you see, timing everything perfectly. For you see, as you read the book of Esther, here is the providence of God on perfect display. You ask, what is providence? It's God's seeing to everything. Absolutely everything that needs to be done to bring about his purposes, God seeing to it that it happens just like he plans. In the Heidelberg Catechism, a list of questions and answers, uh, question number 27, the Heidelberg Catechism says, what do you understand about the providence of God? Here's what it says. The Almighty... Everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty indeed. And here's the point. All things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Not by chance, not by accident, but by the providential hand of God. It's a beautiful reminder to us that in the hearts, the man plans his way. We may plan and prepare and get ready, but my friends, it's the Lord who establishes his steps. It's a reminder to us that God does indeed work all things according to the counsel of his will. It's a reminder that God works all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. In Esther chapter 6, Queen Esther was ignorant of the situation. She had no idea what was happening, utterly powerless to help. Mordecai, her cousin, was in danger. His life was threatened. His life hung in the balance by the thinnest of threads. Humanly speaking, yes, a terrifying and, and precarious turn of events. But in chapter 6, verse 1, it reads, On that night, on that very night, the king could not sleep. God was at work 
for the good of Mordecai in ways beyond our understanding. The malice of Haman and the ignorant bliss of Ahasuerus presented no barrier to the lordship of the God of heaven. Indeed, are made servants of the larger design of God's eternal purposes. You may not know it, but God uses the powers and the authorities of this world, even evil men and women. God uses all sorts of things, and He uses those things for His eternal purposes. Indeed, that, that here uh, Mordecai, God would use. And that God would use Ahasuerus, and God would use Haman. And when the king hears of how Mordecai stopped the assassination plot against him, he asks, what had been done to honor him? Mordecai, as he reads through this, realizes that he had forgotten. The king had never thanked Mordecai. But here's the thing. If the king, if the king had rewarded Mordecai, if the king had rewarded Mordecai five years previous, the story would have a very different ending. And my friends, if the book of Esther teaches us anything, it's that that we believe, in an, we believe in an on-time God. A God who is never late. A God who does exactly as He plans. He is never in a hurry. He's never early. He's never late. He's always on time. His timing is perfect. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, the Bible says, in the fullness of time, Jesus came. Or in Psalm 31, our times are in his hand. And the word of the Lord in Esther chapter 6 calls us to direct our confidence in the one who controls all things. He's the most reliable object. He invites us as the psalmist does, to lift up our eyes to the heavens from where our help comes. It helps us sing with the psalmist with renewed confidence and the only solid foundation for our faith. For you see, some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And I repeat this because it's really embedded throughout the book of Esther that God has all things under his control. As I mentioned, Esther is a funny tale. It's a comedy of sorts. It's satire. And here is the irony of arrogance. Haman is found standing in the outer court and is immediately ushered into the king's presence. And very quickly, now things move from the serious to almost slapstick. It's difficult not to... My kids are going to hate me for this. My ki... It's hard not to LOL. <laughs> it's hard not to laugh out loud. 
And so Ahasuerus asks his question, what shall happen to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman says to himself, and this is a part of the scriptures that we're, we get an inside look at the brain of Haman, right? So we get to know his thoughts, his innermost feelings. Haman thinks to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? I mean, what's not to love about this section? I mean, it's so funny. It's hilarious. Haman says in his heart, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? The irony of arrogance. We're shown the heart of Haman. And in no one's surprise, we find that, is, that it is actually Haman that has the first place in Haman's heart. He could think of no one better suited for this reward than himself. I told you the story how I waved to Kevin Costner. Remember that story? I, you know, I mean, I'm sorry. Kevin Costner was right, standing right behind me as the crowds were cheering. I thought, me on? You know, it's, uh, it's Haman who says in his heart, who would the king honor more than me? And he's getting ready. He's preparing. It's irony at its finest. He has made an idol of himself and his ego. He has made a fool of himself. One can almost see the face of Haman glow as the king begins to issue the command based upon Haman's advice. He's already beginning to experience the glory of this event. What a shock when Haman suddenly realizes that it's Mordecai, his mortal enemy, whom the king wants to honor. And the worst of it all, it's Haman who has to carry out his own recommendation, honoring Mordecai. <laughs> it's funny. I, just, I think it's so hilarious. He is to dress Mordecai like a king. He's to lead him around the city. And to proclaim all that this man is being, uh, is being honored for by the king. This man, had been, uh, this man uh, Haman, had planned to execute Mordecai that very morning. And yet, it's Haman who's proclaiming the, the honor of Mordecai. The irony of it all. God does not honor those you think he will honor. And my friends, God elevates those who we think have no place in the kingdom of God. And that's the beauty and the irony of the gospel story, isn't it? That those who wish to be first will be last, and those who are last, God will elevate to be the greatest of all. When Jesus is asked by his disciples, who will sit on your left hand and your right hand? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? Jesus points to a place where nobody has looked before. Jesus finds greatness in the strangest of places. 
He does not look to the Pharisees or the teachers of the law or those who in their day were considered great by their society, but the ingredient to greatness or success was found in the least of these. Jesus turns the pyramid upside down. No longer is greatness placed upon the mighty or the accomplished or the experienced. Greatness is placed upon those who really do not have much to give. For Jesus says, whoever wishes to become great among you, he says, must become the servant of all. What an irony. What a reversal of the way that we think of the kingdom of God, that we think about our faith, that it's not just the elite or the most learned or the ones like the church lady who have it all together and better than everyone else. The kingdom of God. Haman was busy building a 75-foot gallows to hang Mordecai, his mortal enemy. And ironically, when we get to chapter 7, it's the very place where Haman would be hung. Haman's plan was to go to the king the following morning to seek permission to have Mordecai hung, and yet it backfires. And Mordecai is honored. And the one who thinks he ought to be honored, the one who thinks in his heart that that it's me the king is talking about. He's eventually humiliated. The irony. The third thing, the man whom the king delights to honor, there's this great reversal. Who is the man that, the, that God, the great king, delights to honor? It's none other than Jesus Christ. On that day, on that coming day. The scripture tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. My friends, you and I are gathered here because we know the upside down pyramid, right? The upside down, upside downness of the kingdom. You and I are here because we know that we're not worthy recipients of, of the honor that God bestows. We know that we're only here because of what Christ has done for us in our stead. You and I both know that we fall short, we fall miserably short. You and I both know that we're not perfect, that we're in need of a savior, that we're in need of a rescuer, a redeemer. So what does the king do, the good king? This great reversal that takes place on Calvary. The one who should be hung is not, and the one who should not is. This great reversal where you and I who belong there on the cross because of our sin, the Bible tells us instead Jesus Christ hangs in our place. <laughs> 